So the way we've structured uh, this, this principle of foundations of our faith, we want to begin with kind of a systematic theology. What do we believe in terms of the doctrines of God, the doctrines of Christ, Holy Spirit, things like that? And in really, in many ways, our systematic theology is going to be the thing that informs everything else we do. You know, one of the nice things about, about the Reformed doctrines is they're consistent. So the church policies and procedures, even the way we run the office in many ways, are based on the doctrines that we understand through Holy Scripture. It's, it's a, there's a number of ways that you can summarize those doctrines. There's a number of chapters, of course, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, if we had longer time, or we might do this in the future, we could go through each one of those chapters. But one of the best ways is to summarize uh, the, 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 the systematic theology that we believe with the, the acrostic tulip. Uh, and uh, that came out of the Synod of Dort. So that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to have five uh, uh, lessons on systematic theology. We're going to have uh, one lesson on biblical theology, our view of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is one story. Uh, we're going to look at why do we worship the way we do. We're going to look at what is Presbyterianism, why do we have a Presbyterian form of government, and maybe have some history about the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in there as well. So by the time you leave, after eight weeks, you ought to have a pretty good foundation, and that will help you be able to help the whole church make decisions based on biblical principles. But tonight, an introduction of, the, uh, of our systematic theology, TULIP, basically that comes from the Synod of Dort about 400 years ago in the year 1618. The Reformation had been going for 100 years now. Uh, Holland had become a reformed bastion of truth, much like Switzerland, much like Scotland had in many ways. They had been in a prolonged war with Spain, and Spain really committed genocide in many ways against that, that, uh, that, that war. There was, uh, there was actually kind of a papal bull uh, against the Protestants of Holland where you could actually have permission to destroy them uh, in, in, in the name of God, that sort of thing. Uh, but during a, a, a peacetime period during that time, there became, there, there became some, uh, some uh, people who, who uh, protested uh, the, uh, the beliefs of the Dutch Reformed Church. Uh, and uh, that the, the views that they held to were from a professor named Joseph Arminius. So what happened is after this Synod of Dort, Arminianism uh, was determined to be an error. And what we, sometimes people call Calvinism, we refer, prefer to call Reformed theology, uh, came, came to the forefront. And they basically addressed some of the different concerns that the Arminians had. And in doing so, they came up with the idea of TULIP. Uh, because, of course, it's Holland, so that's the, the flower of Holland or tulips. But tulip is, now well, let me see if I can get this right. Help me out, Jack. Total depravity, right? Uh, unlimited, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Tonight, we're going to learn about total depravity. But here's the, this picture actually, hey, this, this idea means so much to this picture actually hangs in our boardroom. This is a, a picture of the Synod of Dort, of all these Dutch theologians. What was neat about this particular uh, conference was that they invited international people to come, voting members from different countries around the world. So they had representatives from Scotland, from England, probably from France, uh, perhaps from Germany, from Switzerland, that kind of thing. So you see all these wonderful Dutch people here. You know, here's, here's Tyler Van Fossen's great-grandfather. Stinky Van Fossen, right here. You know, he's the one that came over to America. But, uh, you know, so, so you look at this and you think, well, what are all these people doing? These people codified the Reformed faith. 
and they, they, they defended it boldly and bravely, and they didn't go around burning people at the stake or anything like that. They just said, this is an error. And yet, this error of Arminianism still is pervasive today. And uh, it has also been codified in many ways. The United Methodists, some of us have a Methodist background. The United Methodists are basically straight-line Arminian, whereas we are straight-line Reformed Calvinistic. So we're going to learn the first principle tonight. Josiah Ricewick has agreed to teach on total depravity. It's one of those things you've got to start with the bad news before you can get to the good news, right? So we've got to learn about just how sinful we are. So Josiah, come tell us how sinful we are. We drew straws for this one. There we go. All right, is this okay? All right, uh, actually, uh, to determine who uh, would teach this lesson, we asked uh, among those able and willing to teach, the question was, uh, who is the most depraved? And I think I, <laughs> I uh, was selected. Um, JP, do you have the screen for me here? Who's that? I missed that joke, sorry. Turn it on here, JP. All right, I apologize. Perfect. All right, uh, so let me uh, begin here just by asking the question, um, is there anywhere you'd rather be tonight? Uh, you don't have to answer that uh, out loud in case the answer is no, um, but it's such an encouragement to me as we were singing that psalm, uh, just to remember myself as the body of Christ. Uh, this is a wonderful way to bookend your Sunday evening. Uh, in terms of preaching in general, uh, a hero of mine was a, a German theologian at a perilous time in Germany's history, and he had this quote in one of his sermons. He says, out there, meaning the secular world, they are running after the latest sensations the excitements of an evening in the big city. Never knowing the real sensation, something infinitely more exciting is happening here. Here, where eternity and time meet, where the immortal God receives mortal human beings through the Holy Word and cares for them. Um, I do not consider myself qualified to teach the um, amazing truths uh, contained in the Word, but this Holy Spirit makes it effectual. So as we're um, hearing the scripture that I've prepared for us, um, I'd just like to reflect on many of the verses that we'll be talking about today I memorized as a young man when I really didn't care to. They really weren't of value to me, and then um, in preparing this lesson, many of them came back. So I hope this is effectual for you. Uh, let me pray for us tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We pray that you would uh, make our time worthwhile. We are here not for each other, not for ourselves. We're here for you. We thank you that you care for us. Pray that you would keep my mouth from error. Help me to teach accurately your word. Pray that as we discuss a theological concept, we would not be puffed up by it, but we would be humbled that you have provided uh, knowledge of you through it. 
pray that as we uh, look at your word today, that we would receive it with faith and love, that we'd lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Let me pray. Amen. All right. So I'll be discussing the first uh, letter in our acronym, the T in TULIP. So let's see here. No, it should be the computer. We just had this working. Can you move it for me, JP? All right. So what is total depravity? So the definition of total depravity is it is the doctrine that unregenerate man is, has a nature which is totally corrupted with sin. So this uh, definition raises up more questions than it answers. In particular, what does it mean to be unregenerate? What is man's nature? And what does it mean to be totally corrupted with sin? What is sin? So as a blanket statement here, I'll say unregenerate man is a human who is not uh, born again, who has not been renewed by the Holy Spirit. It is a man or a woman who has not yet received the gospel uh, when we talk about man's nature, we'll speak about that in a moment. And first, we'll talk about what is sin. So can you move on for me, JP? All right, so sin involves two uh, types of sin. The first type of sin here we have is sins of commission. So a sin of commission is a sin that we commit. We see these types of sins uh, from 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So an action that violates God's law, these are the easiest to think of in terms of sinning. The second type of sin is a bit more nefarious and the one that we more easily let slide. This comes from James 4. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This would be a sin of omission. Example of a sin of omission would be the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. They didn't do any wrong actions, but they failed to care uh, for the weak and the needy. That was a sin. The Westminster Shorter Confession describes sin in the following way and answers the question, what is sin? The response is, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So failure to act in the way we should and acting in ways we should not. So when we talk about man being sinful, we need to consider both these types of sin. You get the next one, JP? Thank you. All right, so the good question we can ask is, why do we sin? Now, there's no one, I think, on earth who would say there is no sin. Certainly, we all do actions we should not do, and we do not do actions we should. The question is, why do we sin? Uh, so the Christian response is a doctrine known as original sin. So original sin is the doctrine that all mankind is inherently sinful from birth as a result not of their own actions or of a lack of education or of a lack of social status, but just as a result of Adam's first sin. As a member of the human race, we inherit an inherently sinful nature. This doctrine is seen throughout the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. As we sang earlier, just a few minutes, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This doesn't refer, this is the psalmist David, he doesn't refer to the circumstances surrounding his birth. He says that when he was conceived, he had a sin nature. There was sin present in him from his conception. 
In terms of a short statement, uh, original sin can be described in this way. Why do we sin? It's because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. When we are born, we are not born a blank sheet or a blank slate that society can build good or ill upon us. Rather, we are born with a sin nature. This uh, doctrine is fairly unique to Christianity. I can remember when I was in college, there was a, a young woman from China in our campus ministry who just had an amazing heart for sharing the gospel. I had assumed she must have been born into a Christian family. Surely her father was an underground pastor. She had such a knowledge of the Bible and such a desire to preach his word, but I couldn't have been more wrong. So Mohan was her name. And when Mohan was in high school, she was in her atheistic communist uh, high school, and she had to take a comparative religions course. And they had, on the chapter on Christianity, uh, the notion of original sin was mentioned. And when it described that every person was born with a sinful nature that needed to be corrected by a savior, she saw that and said, that's it. That's what's wrong with me. That's what's wrong with my world. And she became a Christian through the doctrine of original sin. So their doctrines do matter here. This is the doctrine of original sin. We could spend an hour talking about it on its own. Uh, we'll take two slides instead. Uh, let's see. We'll try one more time. Was that me or you, JP? Awesome. All right. So we, this doctrine of original sin shows up in Romans as well. This is Paul writing in his epistle to the Romans. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. So the one man who transgressed, that is our first father, Adam, we inherit this sinful nature. It's not something we choose to commit at any age of accountability. We are born inherently sinful because of that first sin. So before we can talk about what total depravity then teaches, how far does this uh, sinfulness impact us, we need to first address a few misconceptions. All right, so the first misconception about total depravity would be a, a mischaracterization, which I'll call utter depravity. So utter depravity would be the doctrine that an unbelieving man, an unregenerate man or woman, is as sinful as he possibly could be. This is clearly not true. We can see in our own lives. No one sins as much as they possibly could. As an example, uh, my daughter Piper is potty training right now. We have a big bag of Skittles, which we give to her whenever she has a successful trip to the potty. Uh, but I feel this is a safe place, and I'll let you know that every evening, most evenings, I steal a few of those Skittles from my daughter. All right, that is evil, but it's not as evil as it could be. I could have replaced those Skittles with painted rocks. Even if we think of perhaps the greatest villain in history, Adolf Hitler, there is evidence to suggest he cared for his mother, that he loved his family. As evil as the most evil man in history has ever been, he had um, some ways he could have sinned more. So this is shown from Scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2.7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at hand. Only he, that being God, who now restrains it, will do so until he is out of the way. So God is restraining wickedness. We see God restrain Abimelech's wickedness, uh, preventing him from lying with Abraham's wife. Uh, the Lord is restraining wickedness as a common grace to believers and unbelievers. We can praise him for that. 
All right, the second misconception, oh, there we go, thank you, would be complete depravity. This would be the doctrine that an unregenerate man, an unsaved person, is incapable of any good action. This is clearly wrong. I have many unbelieving friends who put me to shame in their charitable donations and the time they donate to the needy. Our Savior himself says the following in Luke 6, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So when we talk about a good action, indeed unbelievers are capable of good actions. One of the five tenets of Islam is caring for the poor in your community. In order to fully uh, embrace the religion of Islam, you must invest in your community. So good actions are certainly possible for both believers and unbelievers. Okay, so that was just two common misconceptions I wanted to get out of the way. And now we can talk about what total depravity actually is. So total depravity, the definition here is it is the doctrine the, uh, that unregenerates man's nature is totally corrupted with sin. We can describe this in two ways. Positively, it teaches that uh, unbelieving men and women are constantly, continuously, and incessantly sinning. It sounds very strong, but we'll see this case from Scripture. Negatively, uh, it also says that uh, unregenerate man, unsaved men and women, are unable to do, understand, or even desire righteousness. This is oftentimes called total inability, and these are not attractive doctrines. I would not have chosen these, uh, but we'll see that they are necessary from Scripture. Uh, so let's go about this here. So first, the positive case. All right, this is the case total depravity teaches that man is constantly sinning without the work of the Holy Spirit. So we see this in the Old Testament. This one's an easy one to look at the Old Testament. Genesis 6-5, this is the Lord speaking about the earth before Noah, uh, before the flood, I should say. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. So every uh, thought or action in the heart of man at this time was only evil. And we fool ourselves if we think we are in some way morally superior to those before the flood. So we have here only evil. So the question can be asked, how can this be? Uh, Jeremiah 17.9 describes the heart this way, Deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the claim is that unbelievers are constantly sinning in everything they do. This brings an obvious objection. That obviously just isn't true. Uh, certainly, you look at uh, unbelievers who are kind to their family. How could they be sinning? We need to remember that there are two types of sins, sins of omission and sons of commission. So if we look at the biblical commands, things that unbelievers omit, Micah 6.8 has the following command. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So the idea being here, if you reject God as your God, how could you walk humbly before him? Whether you deliver your body to be burned, whatever kind actions, if you do not recognize God as God, that's a sinful action. You are in sin at that time. Our Savior says the following in Matthew 22, Teacher, 
which is the great commandment in the law? And his response here to this question is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Oftentimes we think of these as perfect goals for perfect Christians to reach. These are commands for all humanity. And we should recognize that we fail to reach these daily, hourly, every minute perhaps. And uh, the unbeliever reaches, uh, commits these sins daily, fails to reach this goal. And so the question that should be brought to our minds is the same thing the disciples ask Christ. Who then can be saved for under this state of sin? Um, these are questions we should have in mind. So too often here, our Christian heart is an uh, idol factory. So we should be careful not to say here that the unbelievers are in these constant sins of omission. We ourselves are always making idols of ourselves, idols of um, our own actions rather than doing things to please God. All right, so to sum up here, how could an unbeliever be constantly in sin? With the following statement is how we describe this. Any action which does not give glory to God in both result and motive is a sinful action. So an unbeliever cannot be motivated to serve God if they do not believe in God, if they do not worship God. Every action they do is then inherently sinful. All right, so there's the positive case. We have some scripture here to sum up. This is Romans 3, 9 through 18. The Apostle Paul writes, For we have already charged that all, both the Jews and Greeks, now, for Paul, there are two types of people in the world. For him and his audience, there are Jews and non-Jews. Non-Jews were referred to as Greeks. So when he says Jews and Greeks, he means everyone. So everyone is under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So we may say we may not curse, we may not uh, run rapidly to wickedness, though too often we do, uh, but if there is no fear of God before our eyes, our every breath we take is stolen. Uh, we exist to glorify our God. Not glorifying him in any action is a sinful action. And that should be a sobering thought for believers and unbelievers. So from the positive case, we can then move on to the negative case. Okay, so we discussed how uh, total depravity teaches here that unbelievers are constantly sinning. The negative side of this, uh, on what does total depravity teach about what man is not doing? Well, it teaches that man is unable to do, understand, or even desire righteousness. Up to this point, much of, but not all, but much of historic Protestantism would agree with me. Uh, once we get to this point is where there is uh, more differences between denominations. Uh, but if I'm successful, I'll be able to show you some scripture to say that this is a biblical teaching. This is what scripture teaches about what man can and cannot do before he is regenerated, before he is saved. All right, so on the negative side, the, an unsaved person cannot do any righteous act. They cannot understand righteousness. And lastly, we cannot desire righteousness. Keeping here in mind, when we speak of righteousness, we're thinking of a sinless act, a sinless act. All right, so first being unable to do a righteous act. 
So 1 Corinthians 12, 3, the Apostle Paul here says, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Holy Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Belief is not something we can ever do on our own. The Holy Spirit gives us belief, and without that belief, no action we have can really be sinless. Uh, Christ himself tells his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Without the help of Christ, we can do no righteous act. So to sum up here, unregenerate man, an unbelieving person, is unable to please God regardless of our outward acts. If we deliver our bodies to be burned, if we uh, sell all our possessions and deliver them to the poor, if we do not have love, if we do not have love for Christ, it gains us nothing. All right, so the next part of our total inability... So the doctrine here teaches us that an unregenerate man, before we are saved, before the Holy Spirit renews our minds, we cannot even understand righteousness. The Apostle Paul here says in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the, I'll say the opportunity, it's a growing experience, to share the gospel with someone and to have them mock it back to you. Um, something that in America we're very respectful of each other's beliefs, um, but it can happen, and it's a good reminder that what to me is the most important fiber of my being, this uh, where I gain my identity, where I am saved from my sin, is folly to many unbelievers. Uh, Christ himself says in a rhetorical question, he says here, why do you, speaking to the Pharisees, he says, why do you not understand what I say? And he answers his own questions. He says, because you cannot bear to hear my word. Until our mind is renewed, we cannot understand righteousness. We rebel against it. This is perhaps spoken most clearly in the following passage. Romans 8, verses 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here our minds don't just need enough education. We just don't need a better Sunday school teacher. We just would, didn't need better parents to tell us the gospel. We cannot submit to God's law. We cannot understand it unless the Holy Spirit intervenes for us, unless we have a Savior. All right, so the final state of our inability is... There we go. The unsaved person is unable to even desire righteousness. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, this is Paul speaking to Christians. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Uh, the dead are unable to desire to do good. Dead people are dead. We can't desire our way uh, back to life. We must be brought back to life. Uh, in contrast to describing an unbeliever as dead here, uh, Christ, in speaking to Nicodemus, describes an unbeliever as not yet even born. Jesus answers here to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In 2019, uh, there was a small news story. A man in India, who was tired of the suffering in his life, decided to sue his parents for conceiving him without his consent. 
He felt his life wasn't quite worth living and they were selfish to bear him, so he sued his parents. Unsurprisingly, that case did not make it to court, but he has a point. You cannot will yourself to be born. Uh, my wife, Berkeley, and I have been blessed with two children, and I bet if they could have, been, uh, could have spoken when they were born, they would have said, come back tomorrow. This isn't a great time for me. <laughs> they did not care to be born at that moment. So when we speak about being born again, I do not know of any child who willed to be born again. If we take Christ seriously at his words here, certainly this is something that uh, must be done outside of, outside of our own will. We do not desire to be born. Be born. We do not desire righteousness. Uh, this is available in the Old Testament as well. Uh, the, the prophet Ezekiel speaking to Israel or about Israel. This is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. He says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So if the heart contains our desires, we don't need a better heart. We don't need it to be cleaned. We need a heart transplant. We need a new desire. The Apostle Paul describes us as a new creation. An old creation, has, the old man has passed away. Uh, here, 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We need not only new knowledge, we need not only a new will, we need a new heart. We need new desires in order to do righteousness. All right, so in summary, here our total depravity can be described in two ways. Positively, it says here that total depravity asserts that unregenerate man is constantly sinning. We saw in scripture that if we do not recognize God in all of our actions, if we do not glorify him, that action itself is not sinless. Negatively, uh, we can also say that total depravity asserts that an unbelieving man is unable to do, understand, or even desire righteousness. Um, this, again, this is not my favorite doctrine. This does not help me feel better about myself, but what it does uh, make me ask is, along with the disciples in Matthew 19, 25, who then can be saved? And ultimately, it is those who put their trust in Christ, those whom Christ has bought. This is a Christ-exalting doctrine as all biblical doctrines are. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Just to clarify again here, there's a lot of misconceptions about what total depravity does say. One thing total depravity does not assert is that um, non-Christians sin in every way possible. There we go. Nor does it assert that uh, unbelievers are incapable of kindness, charity, self-sacrifice, or any other work. These are all uh, available to uh, unbelievers. However, uh, they do not gain them any righteousness. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Only what is done for Christ will last. All right, so in closing, we've seen that original sin impacts every action we could ever, uh, um, every action we could ever commit, uh, but there is one human post-Adam who was born without original sin, and that was Christ. Christ has victory over depravity. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, this is one of those verses that I memorized long ago before I ever cared to, um, but I couldn't get it out of my head when preparing this lesson. 
Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this doctrine shows our difference from Christ. Christ was not just a better human, he was different. He had a different nature, both a human nature and a God nature. Uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are able to understand it and you have preserved it for us. Lord, there are, there are doctrines and things in here which are hard to understand, some that I can understand, but I simply do not like. I thank you for them. I thank you that you renew our minds daily. We thank you that you have delivered us out from an estate of sin and misery and brought us into an estate of salvation. Thank you that we are able to worship you openly here this Sunday evening. I just pray that you would bless each of us as we sing our final songs and exit, Lord. I pray that you would bring us back to worship you again next week. In the name we pray. Amen.